This morning we're, we're finishing up our series, The Art of Life, and uh, want to talk about this issue of how do you know God's will. I had a professor in seminary named Had Robinson, and there are a number of things he said during my time there that have just stuck with me. Now, one of them was this notion. He said, you make decisions, and then decisions turn around and make you. And that has stuck with me because I think it's true. You make decisions in life, and then those decisions turn around and make your life because life is just full of all kinds of decisions. It's what we're doing all the time. And those decisions, we live with the consequences and the implications through our life. So the goal is to, to, to make good decisions. How do we do that? I mean, some of you in, sitting in here are looking at big decisions. Maybe you've got a job promotion offer. You've got to decide whether or not you're going to take it. And how do you wrestle through that? How do you know if that's really God's heart or not? Some of you are, are single and thinking about getting married, and that's a huge question. Who do I marry? Is this the right one? Some of you may be looking at buying a house or thinking about moving. That's a huge life-changing thing because it changes your location and where you live. And we wrestle when we come to those big, big decisions in life. We make all the small ones pretty easily, but when we come to those big decisions, it kind of puts us back. And at that moment, we say, okay, where, where, where is God in this? What, what is his will in this decision? What's the right thing for me to do? It's interesting to me, as I've been reading this week, to discover that 50 to 100 years ago, people didn't ask that question. I mean, if you read the literature and the spiritual divines, they, they don't wrestle with this notion of finding God's will. And as you think about that, you begin to realize why. Two reasons. One, opportunity. Back then, they didn't have options. <laughs> if you wanted to get married, there were maybe five to eight girls who lived in your village that were potentials. Not as hard as playing the field these days. You know, you didn't worry about your career because if your dad was a blacksmith, the chances were you were going to be a blacksmith. And didn't have to worry about where you lived because the village you were born in is probably the village you were going to die in. So nobody cared. But, but for us, we have all these opportunities. I mean, think about all the options we have. And because we have options, we have to make choices. Alvin Toffler wrote a book called Future Shock. And in that book, he said, we suffer from the malaise of overchoice. And that's true. You talk to missionaries who come back from the field and going into a grocery store is a traumatic experience because there's, you know, there's 10 different kinds of mayonnaise. On the field, you were lucky to get mayonnaise. Now you have to choose. Somebody did some research on buying a car. Do you know with all the options, colors, body styles, different makes, uh, you have 25 million, 25 million different options of car you could buy? It's not a big decision, is it? We're overloaded with choice. What makes it even harder for us and why we ask the question is not just our opportunity, but we want control, right? We live with this illusion that we can control our lives in such a way to get life's best. And God forbid we miss the best. And when you live under that pressure, man, you want to make the right decision because if you make the wrong decision, oh my gosh, it's going to be terrible. 
You know, you've got to find the right person. You've got to find the right job. You've got to find the right location. You've got to find the right house. You've got to drive the right car. You gotta... So all the pressure's on to make these choices well. So how do you find God's will? How, what's the, the process for that? That's what I want us to wrestle with this morning. Um, really, I want us to do th- three things. I want to talk about the nature of God's will a little bit. Then I want to talk about the problems with the dot. And if that doesn't make sense to you, it will in a few moments. And finally, I want to give some direction on how we can make good decisions, okay? The nature of God's will, problems with the dot, how we can make good decisions. It's interesting, when you begin talking about this notion of God's will, uh, people look at God's will kind of in three ways. Uh, Two of them, everybody agrees on the third, there's some debate. The first notion of God's will is what we call his sovereign will. This is the will of God's decrees. This is the will of God's providence. This is the notion that God is sovereign over every detail of life. He knows exactly how things are going to unfold. Nothing unfolds outside his purview. He's the one who is in charge of it all and he'll redeem it all to his purposes and his plan. And he has an overall plan. Plan for you, a plan for me, a plan for the world, a plan for the universe. And he's in charge of it all. It's his decrees. The problem is most of it's secret. We don't know his decrees. We we know pieces that he's chosen to reveal to us. We know that his kingdom's going to come. We know that the that Jesus is someday going to come back and establish it on earth. We know pieces, but we don't know everything. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, talks about this. It says, in him, in Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. That's the sovereign will of God. The second aspect of God's will, it's what we sometimes call his revealed will or his moral will. This is his desires in terms of how he wants us to live. And we understand what that is because we have the scriptures. And in the scriptures, God reveals his desires for us. You can go to the Ten Commandments. You can go to all kinds of places in the New Testament. Uh, One passage is 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4. As for the other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in a order to please God. In other words, how to live to live out his will, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Obvious thing God wants for us is to be set apart, sanctified, become like him. That's his, his moral will. One place you see these two wills together is actually in Deuteronomy 29. It's the only place you see his sovereign will, his decrees, and his revealed will, the moral will, put together. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. That's his sovereign will. We don't understand all of that. But the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. That's his moral will. That's what we're to to live out, that we must follow all the words of the law. The law kind of revealed his will to his people at that time. So sovereign will, revealed will, and then this is the one that gets some debate, the individual will. And now some people believe that God kind of has a roadmap for us in life. And that if we want to be in the center of his will, you probably heard that phrase, we need to discover what that roadmap is. It's kind of like a corn maze. We've got to make the right choices and the right 
moves as we go through life to make sure we are in the center of his will. When I first became a believer, this whole issue of living out God's will was a big deal to me. It was because I was trying to wrestle with human responsibility and God's sovereignty and how I lived and how did I discover the right thing to do. I mean, I didn't know where I was going to go to college and I was wrestling with that decision. And, you know, you're always wondering who you're going to marry and what I'm going to end up doing and do I go into ministry or not. All these questions. And the guy who discipled me really believed that there was an individual will, that, that God had a plan. And what you had to do is discover what that plan was. Now, you had to use some wisdom and you had to pray, but you, you really had to figure out what it was. Discover kind of the, the secret of what God wanted you to do. And I wrestled with that because I found it incruciate... Can't even say that word this morning. Found it really frustrating, okay? Because <laughs> um, every time I made a decision, I'd still have the question mark, is this really God's will or not? I mean, I prayed about it. I, I, I checked with other people. I looked at scripture. I listened to God's voice. But I don't know. Is it, what, what if I miss it? What if I don't go to the right college? And I won't meet the right person. And I won't get the right job. And because I don't have the right job, I won't be able to live in the right place. And I'm doomed. It'll be terrible. So I live with this huge frustration. Got into seminary, and actually right before seminary, started reading about the notion of God's will. Came across a book called Decision Making and the Will of God by Gary Friesen. And it was like this breath of fresh air. I thought, oh, finally, somebody who makes sense. And he began to question the dot. That maybe God didn't have a dot. That maybe that God didn't have a... It wasn't that God didn't have a plan or know what I was going to do, but maybe he didn't prescribe it. Maybe I didn't have to discover it. Maybe there was an alternative way of going through life and making decisions. And I discovered that I think he was right. There are a lot of problems with the notion of the dot. I want to talk through some of those this morning with you. The first has to do with uh, Scripture. I mean, people believe in the dot because you go to Scripture and you find out that God appears to people and gives them direction. I mean, Moses meets with God in the tabernacle and there's this cloud and this fire over him and it's obvious he's meeting with God and he sees God face to face and we think, well, yeah, that's what it's supposed to be like. You know? And, And then... There's other places. I mean, Paul's going down the Damascus Road and God just zaps him and kind of redirects him to become an apostle. And we read those things and we think if it happened to them, then it should happen to us. That's what the Christian life should be like. The problem is that's a false premise. Just because God does it that way with that person in the scriptures doesn't mean that he's going to do it that way with me now. In fact, the majority of people in the scriptures don't have these supernatural encounters with God. I mean, Moses sees a fiery bush. I don't, never have. Balaam has this donkey that talks to him. My dogs never talked to me. Barked, but never talked. Elijah calls fire down from heaven. I've tried, but I can't do it. You know, just because it's described in the scriptures doesn't mean it's prescribed or that we should expect that to be normative. 
because those things are not. Let me give you an example that relates to making decision in the beginning of the book of Acts because Judas is gone from the apostles. They want to have 12, so they cast lots to pick Matthias. Now, if something being described in scriptures means it's being prescribed, then casting lots must be a good way for us to make decisions. Anybody cast lots this week? It's kind of like rolling the dice to make it. No one? Last, last, this month? This year? What's wrong with you guys? Don't you have any faith? It's in the Bible. We don't cast lots. Why? Well, we don't because it's not normative. And just because it's described doesn't even mean that it was the right thing to do. I mean, actually, it almost looks like Paul is the 12th apostle. We never hear about Matthias again. Just because they did it doesn't mean it was right. It's not normative. The other thing you find out in Scripture is those encounters with God are pretty rare. Moses has it. David has some. Peter does. Solomon has a few. But the majority of people in Scripture don't. They don't encounter God in that supernatural way. 1 Samuel chapter 3, before Samuel has this encounter with God, it says visions and voices from God were rare in those days. Not to be expected. And when God does show up in a supernatural way, it's interesting. It usually doesn't have to do with a personal decision about who you should marry, what house you should buy, or what job you should have. It, it's never individualized like that. When God shows up in, in a supernatural way, it usually has to do with his big plans of what he's accomplishing in history. So Peter sees a vision. And that vision tells him that Gentiles are to be included in the gospel. Big as far as I know, God never showed up to Peter to tell him what house to buy or what horse to, to bid on. Didn't happen. God shows up on the, the biggies. And it also fascinates me that when it happens, the people typically who it happens to aren't looking for it. When Peter has his vision, he's just sleeping on the roof. When Paul gets knocked on his rear end, he's just heading to another country and God intervenes. When Philip uh, is told to go share with the Ethiopian eunuch, he's not looking, asking God for a vision or direction. He's just preaching the gospel and God says, oh, I want you over there. And then God zaps him out of there. It's like God is doing what he wants to do to accomplish his purpose. And at times he breaks in supernaturally, but it's always involved in something bigger. And when God does break in to give uh, guidance, it's not subtle. It's not subjective. It's almost always objective. It's a burning bush. It's a pillar of fire. It's an angel. It's a vision. It's a dream that you know is God speaking. It's not a hunch or a feeling or just an impression. And those may be important. We'll talk about those a little later. But typically in Scripture, when God has a direct path for someone to head or wants to accomplish something uh, specific, He shows up in a big way. So Scripture just doesn't indicate that for the most of, the majority of us, there's a path that we have to discover as God's will. The second thing, saying that God has a dot makes God kind of sneaky, Right? Because it's this idea that God has this plan, but you've got to tune in and figure out and wrestle to discover what it is. And then you'll be held accountable if you don't live it. And as I've thought about that, I thought, you know, that just doesn't make sense to me. 
in terms of the nature of God. I, I mean, what makes sense to me is that God wants to reveal himself in amazing ways, so much so that he incarnated himself in flesh. <laughs> and, and if he'll go to those extremes to help us know what he's like, why is he waiting for me to twist his arm or guess the secret way to discover what I'm supposed to do? If God has a desire for me to accomplish, an expectation for me to meet, I would expect him to make it incredibly clear. I had a counselor one time tell me, he said, Nick, if you want to know how God interacts with people, the best way to know what he's like is to think about the perfect father. And how a perfect father treats his kids is how God typically will treat us, his children. And I was thinking about this in terms of discovering God's will. And I thought, you know, I would never do that to my kids. I'm not a perfect dad. But if I have an expectation, uh, I make it clear to my kids. I don't play a game with them. I don't say, twist my arm, come ask me 10 times, and then I'll tell you. And if they don't meet my expectation, and I say, hey, you didn't do what I wanted you to do, and they say to me, well, you didn't make it clear, that's bad on me. Not bad on them. A good father makes it very clear what the expectations are. God is not a sneaky God. Now, I've often heard people say, well, God's broadcasting. You just got to dial in the right frequency. I thought, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And then I thought, wait a second. Why, would that, why wouldn't God put emergency alert out on all channels if he has expectations? Why would he zap me if I just don't dial in? especially if I want to know what he wants me to do. God is like the good father. He's going to make expectations clear. Third problem is it twists the process. When you think there's a dot that you have to discover, you begin to go on a treasure hunt uh, trying to find the secret. So you uh, play Bible roulette. You know, you open up the Bible and point to a verse. Or you... Distill yourself until a thought pops in your head. Or you cast lots. Or you put out a fleece. Or you play this game with circumstances. If this happens and that happens, it must be this. And the problem with that is now you're, you're looking for a secret answer. And it moves you away from what I think is more normal of making a good decision. Trying to find the dot is a very different thing than making a good decision. When you're trying to make a decision, you're weighing the options. You're writing down the pros and cons. You're talking to other people to give you input. You're praying for wisdom so you have discernment to see what the consequences are. You're looking at your own motives. You're weighing the variables. You're trying to find out what information is important that you don't have. All that is very different than the treasure hunt. I oftentimes find too many Christians on the treasure hunt. Fourth, when you're looking for a dot, it undermines personal responsibility. Because what you end up saying is, well, God told me. And once you say God told me, it's his responsibility, not yours, you're off the hook. And it stops all conversation. Uh, You know, if somebody comes to me and says, well, God told me I need to do this, what am I supposed to say? No, he didn't. Sorry, you misheard. I mean, I might say that because I'm obnoxious sometimes, but 
It's a card you can't do anything with. I had a friend who was a pastor, great guy, I really like him, good pastor, just a great heart. Um, showed up for lunch one day, and he told me, well, I've uh, resigned. And I said, why? He says, well, God told me to. And I said, what do you mean God told you to? He says, well, I woke up in the middle of the night, and I just had this sense that I was done. And I thought, well, I'm not sure about that. I mean, you're having a really productive ministry. Why would you say you're, you're done? I, that just makes no sense for me. And I didn't want to be judgmental, but I had all these questions, and I began to ask him, explain to me what's going on. And I came to find out that he had been in an elder meeting, and somebody from the congregation had come and kind of attacked him. And his elders, rather than supporting him and defending him, kind of sided with this guy, and my friend got really hurt. And that's a, t- a terrible thing, but I thought to myself, but you need to go to your elders and confront them and work this out. Same, and I don't know, maybe God was speaking to him in the middle of the night. That can happen. It's not that it can't. But, but it didn't seem like he was following all the biblical injunctions he needed to. I mean, in Scripture, it's very clear. If somebody hurts you or harms you or sins against you, you go and confront them. And I didn't know whether what he was hearing in the middle of the night was God or just his own frustration and anger and hurt coming out in a way. And to be honest, he didn't know either. But he made this decision. And I couldn't argue with him and his elders couldn't argue him and his congregation couldn't argue him. It's how we get out of things that we don't want to explain or take responsibility for. Well, the guy, I mean, if I showed up and say, I've been praying about it, God told me it's time to leave. You can't say a word, Right? Well, we play that card with other people all the time. I have a request. Let's watch our language around here. Let's not use words like God told me, or it's God's will that, or that God told me to tell you you should do this. Have people tell me that. God told me I should tell you to do this. You know what I tell them? Go tell God to tell me to do that. <laughs> and when he tells me, I'll say, good move. Now, now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit can't speak through those things or doesn't work that way. I think at times he does. But there is a difference between saying, I think God's leading me this way and saying that's God's will. Because when I say it's God's will, I've made it an authoritative revelation that I have to obey. And the standard for authoritative revelations in the Old Testament, if you're a prophet, there was a standard you had to meet. And that was, you had to be 100% accurate 100% of the time. I haven't met very many prophets. My guess is you haven't either. So it's fine to say, hey, I've been praying about this and wrestling with it, and I think God's leading me this way. That's a great thing to say because that brings it into a, a place where you can talk about it. Because I wanted to talk to my friend and tell him, I'm not sure your ministry's over here. Might be, but why don't you go talk to your elders and wrestle through this? Because if you do that, and even if you leave, then the next guy knows that they, the, the, those guys will have to know that the next guy who comes has to be supported. I mean, he missed out on all that. Missed out on it. And we miss out because we say, oh, God told me. I'm not so sure. Now, if you see a burning bush, or your dog talks to you, or you encounter an angel... All right? I'm all ears. Then you can say, God said. But until then, let's back off a bit. Fifth, it distorts God's desire for us. Um, 
this goes back to the notion, what, what is it that God wants for us? Hebrews chapter 5, I think is really fascinating around this. Obviously, he wants us to be sanctified, but when it comes to decision-making, what is he expecting? And some people say, I think what God just wants us is to be so surrendered that we do whatever he says. And I think we do want to surrender to God's sovereign rule. But I think there's something more there. Hebrews 5 is talking about maturity and immaturity. And he says, anyone who lives on milk, still being an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature. And then he defines who the mature are, who I but constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Now there's the mark of maturity is that you can discern what's good, what's bad. In other words, it's not just hearing the small voice of God, it's making good decisions based on wisdom that's been infused in you because you have God's worldview and you're in tune with the scriptures and you're a mature person. I thought, that's exactly what I want for my kids. My kids are all grown up. I don't want my daughter, Paige, calling me and saying, Dad, what should I have for breakfast? What, what should I wear today? I don't want her calling up and saying, should, should, should Britton and I buy this car? Should I go to school? Now, I want to talk to her about those, but if she says, tell me what to do, I'm going to say, uh-uh. You're a big girl. You make a wise choice. You see, I think that's how God deals with us. He wants us to submit to his sovereign will, but he's looking for maturity. He's looking for us to become the kind of people that make good, wise decisions. And when we do an exercise of freedom he's given us, he goes, yeah, that's my kid. Last thing, it scares us. I mean, if God has a dot, what happens if you make the wrong choice? If you married the wrong person or took the wrong job, you're doomed. Scares us. Somebody said, well, God's like a GPS. He gets us back on track. And I I think he is in his sovereignty. But he knows every decision we're going to make. There is no plan B with God. Not at all. Scares us. Um... Did I have one more? No, I didn't. <laughs> Can't remember all my lists here. I think there's an alternative to the dot. And I think the, the, the point of the alternative is that God gives us freedom. Within the circle of God's moral will, we are free and responsible to make wise decisions that further God's kingdom. This is how we live God's will. I, I think God told us exactly what we need to know to live out His will. And beyond what he's revealed to us, we are free to make choices. A couple places you see this. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. He says, so don't worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, his justice, and all these things will be given to you as well. What he's saying is, look, if you just focus on pursuing the kingdom, his rule and reign in your life and in your heart, then all this other stuff, what you wear, what you eat, where you live, who you marry, all the details of your job, it'll take care of itself. You don't need to be consumed by that stuff. In God's economy, that stuff is secondary, not primary. We get all wrapped up into it. And God says, you know, it's, it's not the big thing. Those are the small things. 
So I think we're to seek the kingdom and then I think we're to use wisdom. If the axe is dull and its edge is unsharpened, more strength is needed. But skill, and that word there for skill is literally the Old Testament word for wisdom, will bring success. Saying, you know, you want to be successful? You don't beat the axe. Use your brain, sharpen it. Then you, you know, just use wisdom. Wisdom is the key to success. Make wise choices. So I think the point is simply that. Within God's moral will, we are absolutely free to make decisions using wisdom. And if we do that, we live out God's will. Let me give you an example. Okay, let's use the example of marriage. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now the dot says, there is one person you're supposed to marry and you're to discover who that person is. And our culture is kind of bought into that too. You've got to find your soulmate. You know, if you can find your soulmate, then you'll be happy. And one of the things that's going on in our culture is delayed adolescence. The average age for guys getting married is 29. The average age is 25 for girls. They're delaying marriage. And that's for a host of reasons. But I think one of them is they've got this conception that there's a perfect mate out there. And if I find them, they're the key to my happiness. And that is just total baloney. Okay? Total. And from a Christian perspective, I don't think there's only one person for God that God has for you to marry. Now, once you're married, there's a dot. But before you're married, you have options. Look at what he says here. He says, if anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin he's engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do what he wants. Now, if she's not the dot, he shouldn't do what she wants. But he's assuming there is no dot. In fact, he goes on. He's not sinning if he gets married. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will and has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this also does the right thing. Paul, what are you saying? Are you saying, crap, it's my decision? I got to choose? Yeah. Crap. That's hard. Because now it's my responsibility. Much easier to... Try to find the, the magical dot. You know, put out the fleece. Poke in scripture. Play games in my head. And Paul say, no, you choose. I mean, you're the one who's going to live with her. Or him. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. Paul's about singleness. He says, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, get this, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. Wait a second. I thought there was one person, right? There's just one. No. You have options. But he must belong to the Lord. Not anybody, but people who know Christ. You're not to be unequally yoked. So if the person's a believer and you're a believer and she likes you and he likes her, go for it. Although Paul says, you know, my turn that she's happier if she stays as she is. I think I too have the Spirit of God. <laughs> he said, and a better option is stay single. We don't like that part, but from his perspective. Don't miss the point. Paul is saying, look, you're free. Make a good choice. You see, we bought into this idea of this soulmate that's going to make me happy and then all of us get disappointed because that's just not true and what keeps you married isn't that you found your soulmate. What keeps you married is that you're committed to marriage and you work your tail off to make it work. That's what keeps you married. But if you don't walk in with that attitude, you're going to have problems from the start. 
we're free. So great, Nick, but I still got to make all these decisions. How do I do that? Let me give you some guidance. Um, this is just another example of Paul making ministry decisions for Second Thessalonians. It's interesting. Paul strategized, planned, just made good decisions about what he thought would advance the gospel. And then when God showed up and changed his direction, he went with it. But he wasn't searching for a dot. He just made wise choices. So how do I make a good decision? First of all, read your Bible. Right? Because the Bible is God's will revealed to us. So gorge yourself with Scripture. Engage it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. If you really want to know God's will, that's where it's revealed. So integrate it into your life. Let it shape your worldview. In fact, that's, this is the most important thing to living out God's will in your life. Look what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. It says, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He's saying, look, it's sufficient. You don't need the magical Holy Spirit coming to you in the middle of the night to help you make a good decision. Now, the Spirit may do some of that, but, but the Scripture, if you really delve into it and you begin to think like God thinks and develop the mind of Christ in you, and that worldview, you'll become wise. And as you become wise, you'll become mature. And as you become mature, you'll distinguish between good and evil. Read the Bible. Second, develop a heart for God. It's not just a matter of knowledge, but it's a matter of submitting yourself first to God's sovereign will and then to God's moral will. It's this attitude that says, you know, I know God is in charge of every detail of my life, so I'll accept what he brings into my life, be it joy or happiness or suffering or hardship. I mean, he's the one in charge. I'll submit to that. And then I want to develop his passions and his, his, his values and his heart and his compassion. I want to care about what he cares about. Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 puts this together really well. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, you submit yourself totally to what God wants to do. You say, God, whatever you want with me, I'm a living sacrifice. You know, a living sacrifice has offered its life holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And then he says, do not conform the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How is your mind renewed? Oh, you go back to Scripture. The Scriptures renew your mind, gets you to think differently. And then notice the result. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. You'll live it out. That's how you test and prove what it is because you have the mind of Christ. You're submitted to His will. You're making good decisions. You're living out what God wants. His good, pleasing, and perfect, perfect will. So, read the Scriptures. uh, Develop a heart. And then third... Seek wise counsel. And when I say seek wise counsel, two pieces to this. We live in such an individualistic culture that we think we're capable of making all our decisions ourselves. But Scripture plays that out differently. I think all of us need our individual board of directors. Uh, Proverbs 15.22 says this, Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. 
I think we need a group of people in our lives who know us really well that we can bounce off the big decisions. Whether the job or marriage or financial, but maybe more importantly, even spiritual. Because God speaks through people and with wisdom in the mix. Second, I think uh, you seek counsel through prayer. James 1, 5 uh, argues, if any of you lacks wisdom, if you can't discern what the right thing to do is, especially in the midst of a trial, which is the context of this, he says, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Now, now look at how that fits with this notion of how you make good decisions. When you're making a good decision, you're, you're weighing the pros and the cons and you're trying to be discerning and you're thinking about the consequences and you're thinking about what you don't know and you're looking at your own heart and your motives. And in that context, you say, God, help me have insight as to whether this is, is a good move or not. 20 years ago, there was a church in Chicago that approached me about moving there. And I was trying to think, how do I make this decision? You know, do, do, do I expect to hear a small voice in my head? Am I pointing to a, a verse in the Bible? Is it going to be some kind of a magical hunch? And I finally backed off and said, wait, I need to apply what I teach here. I need to, to make a good decision. So I listed the pros and cons, and I began praying like crazy for wisdom. And the wisdom that came was is understanding the nature of that church and the nature of Waterstone, saying, you know, that would be a foolish, idiotic decision. So it was easy. Fourth, look for God's providence. What I mean by that is look at the circumstances. Now, here's where we get in trouble because we think God leads through circumstance. I'm not sure God loves lead through circumstances. Circumstances are just the context of your decision. You say, well, yeah, but what if God opens the door? Well, well, look... Open doors aren't things... Open doors are simply opportunities. Open doors aren't things you have to walk through. Second Corinthians 2. Paul is writing this. He says, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened the door for me. So God opens this door and he's there preaching. It's the very thing he prayed for and wanted. And then he walks away. He says, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus. He's really worried about Titus. So he says, I'm not going to stay. Even though God opened the door, I'm going someplace else. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Well, that's kind of a lot of gumption, Paul. God opened the door. Paul said, look, it's just a circumstance. And how do you know if an open door is simply an opportunity or misdirection? Maybe Satan is behind the open door. And how do you know an obstacle is an obstacle... To, to be avoided or an obstacle to be overcome. Circumstances are just circumstances. They don't determine your decision. You just look for God's hand. You know, you look for God's hand, but most often you see it after the fact. So when you're making decisions, look at your desires, look at your gifting, look at your circumstances, and choose wisely. Choose wisely. So, fifth, do what seems best. It's not magical. You just use wisdom. What is going to make the greatest impact for the kingdom? If you don't know, pray. God, give me some wisdom here. 
Talk to your friends. Look at the circumstances. Look at your gifting. Look at your desires. You know, um, Augustine uh, used to say, love God and do as you please. Now, you can take that too far, but I think there's a lot of wisdom there. What he's saying is, look, if you're really in tune with God and God's mind, God's going to shape your desires. And Psalm 37.4 kind of says that. He says, if you need to delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So at a point, you do what's best. And if it all seems equal, do what you want to do as long as you're loving God. Love him. Six. Stay open to divine intervention. Now, bad people sometimes react to this and say, well, you just don't believe in the Holy Spirit. No, I believe in the Holy Spirit a lot. And I, I think our emotions are important, intuitions are important, and hunches are important. I think God can use those and sometimes does use those. I just don't want to see them as authoritative. I want them to be considered. And I think two issues have to come out when you're wrestling with the Holy Spirit and whether he's talking to you or not. Number one is clarity. It seems to me in the scriptures when God speaks, it's always clear that people know God is speaking. And that gets you to the second is discernment. You have a hunch that that's the right decision. Hunches oftentimes are an accumulation of your experience uh, coming through you in a way you can't rationalize. And oftentimes they're right on. But sometimes they're not. So be discerning and bounce it off your board of directors, your, your wise counsel. Think the Spirit is talking to you? Maybe He is. We have the Spirit into, in, in us. He, he can speak. But be careful because you, unless it's a vision, I mean, if you have a vision, if an angel shows, if the burning bush, don't worry about discernment, just do it, okay? But if it's the small voice of the Spirit, back off a little bit and be discerning. And lastly, focus on the now and the known. I want you to think about what God really cares about in your life. And honestly, from one perspective, he doesn't care that much about who you marry, where you live, what house you're in, what car you drive, or what job you have. I mean, those matter and he cares, but not not like he cares about your character. Not like he cares. What's Micah 6.8 says? Seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. This is what the Lord requires of you. He cares about that. He cares about your character. He cares about your compassion. He cares whether or not you love your neighbor. He cares whether you love him. Those are the things, those are the things that really, really matter. He doesn't care about who you married. He cares that you love who you married. He doesn't care where you live. He cares that where you live becomes a mission field because he's put you there to reach others. He doesn't care so much about what job you do. I mean, he gifted you and all that to do a job, but he cares that you do it in a way that it honors and brings him glory. Those are the things he cares about. We get so wrapped up in the things that don't matter. And we forget that God wants us to love him and to love our neighbor and to seek his kingdom. And if we do that, (laughs) we've done what God's will is for us.
Let me leave you with a final thought. We're all going to mess up. All of us. There are going to be moments in our lives where we make bad decisions. We don't do God's will. We don't do His moral will. We don't give in to His sovereign will. We mess up. We make bad choices. Right? And the good news is we have a God and a Savior who redeems those. There's no plan B. We don't get to avoid the consequences of our choices, but God does redeem them. And in the end, He'll get us where He wants us to be and make us who He wants us to be because of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Um, we're over, so I'm going to let you stand. And I want to pray for us, and then we'll get out of here. Father, we want to make wise choices. We want to live out your will. But help us this morning to understand what you really care about, is that we love you, and we love others, and we seek your kingdom with all our heart. Help us live into that, Father. Help us not play games with you or second-guess you or do, make silly and foolish decisions. Help us be wise people, wise people who uh, honor you and bring you glory. We pray this in Christ's name, and we pray it for his sake and all God's people said.